welcome back to No BS. I'm Danielle. And I'm Christina. And we are so excited to be back with you today. As you've been listening to the last couple episodes of our season two, you've noticed that we've brought on some guests who uh, specialize in certain areas. And today we're bringing you another one. So excited. It's been so much fun talking to people and interviewing them. Yeah, definitely. And getting like a like specialist or a like a fresh perspective of somebody who's like working hands-on yeah. in the areas that they're talking about. Yeah, especially in stuff that we, we don't know much about or aren't familiar with. Yeah, so today we're super excited to have on a very special guest um, who I know well and Christina also has some history with and she's here to talk to us about some postpartum mood disorders which we don't feel like are discussed enough. Oh, Absolutely. So without further ado, Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yes, definitely. So why don't you give us a little snapshot about like who you are professionally and some of your experience so we can get to know you. Sure. So my name is Kate Stefano torres and I am a professional counselor. I am licensed in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and I'm also registered to provide telehealth in Florida. I am the founder and director of the Artemis Center for Guidance, um, which, when there is not a global pandemic, has offices <laughs> in Seoul, Glassboro, and Elmer, New Jersey. So for folks listening, that's uh, southern New Jersey, sort of right outside of Philadelphia. We have been 100% telehealth since March 13th. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea where the end of that is is coming. So um, hopefully by the end of this year, but but who knows? My expertise is in the identification and treatment of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Awesome. So how did you first get interested in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders? And what led you to like really honing in on that as far as like education? Yeah, so it was after I had my son. My son is going to be 17 in July. So that gives you an idea of how long ago. This was, I can't believe how time flies, but so going back to, um, 2004, I had just had my son. I did not suffer from postpartum depression or anxiety. I had suffered from anxiety in the past, um, panic disorder specifically in the past, but luckily I was healthy after my son was born. But what I like to say to people is that, um, those first couple weeks of motherhood are hell, even in the best of circumstances. And I was totally unprepared for how vulnerable I was going to feel, um, for how exhausted I was going to feel, for sort of this, this sort of sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a high achieving professional. And when you have a baby, none of that matters because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and so you have to figure that out. And I wasn't ready for any of that. Um, so that interested me in this population. During my pregnancy, I'd become close friends with my midwife. And she had been um, referring some of her other patients to me for counseling services. And so it's just sort of natural that I was getting these referrals. And I decided, well, I really like this work and um, I better get some training. And so I went to a well-known training in Philadelphia. It was a weekend long training. um, And I was trained um, in the identification and treatment of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And, and the rest sort of just flowed from that. I met people who work in this field. It's a very tight knit, small community, which is quite interesting. I have friends all over the country because of this work. And that it's kind of a really neat phenomenon that, you know, like you can go 
for example, I've lobbied on Capitol Hill. So I've gone to DC and seen my friends from California and Florida and um, Texas and Michigan. And it's just, you know, you just walk into a room and there's folks that you know who are doing the same work all over the country. And so over time, you know, I, I hone this expertise and I um, have even done some training. There's a national certification through Postpartum Support International, um, and I was a lecturer in their training program. I believe it was a seven, a series of seven trainings, and I actually, with my former business partner, taught two of those trainings for several years. Wow. Um, so. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you mention, I'm sorry if you mentioned it already, how long you've been involved in this? So it's been since your son was a baby. So seven Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we're going on 17 years. Yeah. So I feel like um, perinatal and, and postpartum mood disorders are something that a lot of women don't want to talk about, that they don't want to acknowledge, mm-hmm. and that there's not a whole lot of education on. So what is your experience working with that? Yeah. I think we're getting better at making sure that women are aware of this. New Jersey has a mandatory screening law, so that that's an important point, a, a important piece of this, that that women are screened during their prenatal visits and they're screened in the hospital and then they're screened during their postpartum visits um, by anybody who comes in contact with them. Any provider that deals with a woman during the first year after childbirth in New Jersey is required to screen for postpartum depression. So I think it's improving, but I know why we don't talk about it because it, you know, it seems taboo, right? Babies bring, you know, balloons and rainbows and unicorns and you know, happiness, right? So we can't, we certainly can't say that we're having intrusive, scary thoughts, or that we are so depressed that we can't get up off, you know, the couch. We wouldn't say those things out loud, because people would think we're ungrateful. So it's there's this, you know, this sort of conflict that exists on what society believes, and in turn, then what we believe about how things should be. And it just sets um, women, and by the way, men suffer from depression and anxiety after childbirth as well, just sets these folks up to not be able to ask for help. I think the other thing that contributes to that too is that one of the hallmark signs of postpartum depression is intrusive, scary thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be as mild as being afraid that you're going to drop the baby. I mean, I can remember being afraid to walk down the basement steps with my son and my husband would carry him down the steps because I would get flashes of sort of, we're both going to fall down the steps. And that's a pretty common phenomenon. I think one study identified that 91% of new mothers and 88% of new fathers have negative intrusive thoughts during the first year of the the baby's life. And so what I always say about that is the rest of them are lying, right? Like if you're having 91% of women, that the other 9% are just not telling us the truth. Right. Well, you think about it, it's like you have this little human being that is entirely reliant on you. And that's a lot of pressure, especially for someone who's done it before. It is. And I I have this theory. I don't know that there's literature on this, but my, you know, my theory of this is that um, that hypervigilance that women and like I said, fathers experience in the postpartum period is actually evolutionarily sound. Like it's built into us because those of us who are hypervigilant allow the, the baby to survive and then to reproduce. So that just gets passed on. It's just that for some folks, this gets really out of hand and can be disabling for them. Yeah. So, so, you know, we've talked in our, in our last season, we had an, an 
episode on anxiety that mm-hmm. uh, we outlined that, you know, anxiety is that disproportionate fear for a given circumstance, right? And with postpartum anxiety, whether it's with the mom or the dad, you know, with you talking about the evolutionary component, what part of the anxiety, like at what level does it have to be considered disproportionate to be abnormal or unhealthy? Yeah, so I think it's when it starts getting in the way is when when we get concerned. So, you know, I've treated women who had all the knives removed from their homes because they had scary thoughts or images that they would lose control and stab the baby or their older child or their husband or themselves. And so they call their mom or their mother-in-law and they say, get all the knives out of the house. That's a concern. How do you live in a house that doesn't have knives? How do you, you know, how do you prepare food? So it doesn't have to be that she can't go to work. You know, it, it can be that she can't function in her household responsibilities. And I say she, which is, is probably not appropriate because like I said, that fathers do suffer as well. So it, you know, it's when any area of functioning for the parent gets is sort of interfered with is where, where we would be concerned and we would want to intervene. And that's like, because that's like typical too, like in anyone who has anxiety, one of the main things I always say was like, stop fighting it or yeah. don't want to move about your day. You still, you can have it with you, but you want to get to the other side of your day. And when you're not functioning, that's the problematic piece. So that was a little sidebar, but my no. question that ran through my head as you were, as you were talking was over. So 17 years is a long time. And if you even go back, like 17 years ago, like mental health wasn't even like a thing that people like openly talked about. And that's part of the reason why Danielle and I want to do this is because now it's a little bit more on the forefront. We want to bring more awareness. So when you first started to where you are now, I know you said a lot more people are engaged with this. Are you finding more of an influx of people that are open and willing to receive help for this and that understand the signs um, a little bit more than they did before, maybe say like 10 years ago? Yeah. So it's, that's kind of a tough question, right? Cause I'm on the side where the people are coming to see me. So I agree with you that things have gotten much better over right. 17 years, but 17 years ago, they were coming to my office, the folks that I was seeing. Right. So that, you know, that sample has gotten larger over time. I do think that, that people are more aware. I think, I mean, part of that is they're being screened at their prenatal visits. So how could you not be True. aware? So yeah, I think absolutely that people are more aware. It, you know, I think that people have still have the same resistance though, right? They're not the people I'm interacting with because I'm a therapist. So the people I'm interacting with have, you know, they may not want therapy, but they've decided to come to therapy. I'm sure that there are folks out there who need the help and, you know, for, for whatever reasons, whatever their beliefs are, it's, it's still really difficult for them. And that's the hope with, you know, why we're, you know, there's people working all over the country internationally trying to spread the word so that that will change in time. So give us an idea of what people typically see. I know we talked about like the intrusive thoughts and those um, fears surrounding, you know, certain dangers with the baby, but give us an idea of what people typically see or what kind of symptoms somebody would look for that would kind of set them off and, and alert them that they might have this issue. Yeah. So, um, you know, we use this term postpartum depression as an umbrella term. And, and there, I think there's some, I don't know if danger might be too strong of a word, but that, you know, there's, there's some pitfalls in, in using the umbrella term. It's great because people know what that is, but the struggle is that 
postpartum depression and anxiety, when I use that as an umbrella term, doesn't often look depressed. It doesn't look like people crying and not being able to move around. It's a very anxious, agitated depression. And most of the women that I see meet full criteria for an anxiety disorder. And then some of them are meeting criteria for a mood disorder. And so I think that one of the the struggles is that people say, I don't feel depressed, so I can't have postpartum depression. Right. Mm -hmm. And and what they're feeling is anxiety. And so that's why we try to use words like um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or maternal mental health. There's there's complications with with both of those terms, but they are broader terms that that don't make people just think, oh, well, if you're not sad and crying, then nothing's wrong with you. So, yeah. Did your, in your experience, so you mentioned like fathers too can experience, mm-hmm. what does that look similar to the, to women or does it look different? Yeah. So it looks very similar. It's also an agitated, anxious depression. The difference is that it, the onset is later. And so when we should be worrying about fathers is when the baby's about six months old. Does um, that coincide with bonding time? You know, I, I don't know what the, re- the literature says on this. It may, because you know, I do know that the literature says that dads don't really get interested in their kids until that sort of second half of the, the first year. Mm-hmm. So it may. I also think that it might just be a function of burnout, right? So if, if mom has not been feeling well for six months, that you know, dad is like carrying all the weight and all the worry and all the burden. Uh, and so I think there's, there's a burnout component there. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what the literature says, but for sure it, the onset is a bit later. Um, other than that, the symptoms look very, very similar. So we can't necessarily say that the, that the mental health challenges that people face after a child is really connected to like pregnancy hormones. It's much more of like an experiential environmental thing. We don't know. The answer is we don't know. And I, you know, having sat with these people, you know, session after session, year after year, I think that probably all of that is true. That for some people, it's, it's um, an experiential thing. For some people, it's a developmental crisis that this sort of idea of like transitioning to parenthood from, you know, maybe a lot of people, there's a prolonged adolescence, right? So we have people who are in prolonged adolescence till they're 24. They're also having babies. And so there there can be a developmental component for some folks. It's a psychological component. If they were raised in a household with abuse and trauma, that this can be a, a triggering event for them. And for some folks, for sure, the hormones are doing something we, you know, I don't know what, but you know, I've, I've treated women through multiple pregnancies And, you know, they're able to know they're pregnant, you know, just like this, because as soon as that hormone change takes place, their mood tanks. Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's undeniable that the hormones are are related to it. But I just don't think that that's true for everyone. I think, you know, I think there are all these kind of different um, triggers, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and that kind of follows the same patterns that depression or anxiety follow as well. Correct. It's, it's really hard to say. I, I almost feel like the um, the differences in perinatal or postpartum mood and anxiety disorders are really more, I feel like the, the only real difference is that the way the issue presents, not so much why it's happening or when, when it's happening. It's like the 
it presents. Yeah, so I would agree with you. Um, this is one of the things when we do our training, we say, well, how is postpartum depression different than other depression? And one of the big things is that there's a brand new baby to be taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing is that women are healing physically, regardless of whether they had a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth, they're healing from that. And we don't often have people who are, you know, in the midst of a major depressive episode and, and also um, re recovering from a major abdominal surgery or, you know, are unable to have a bowel movement because they have stitches in their perineum, you know, and, and, you know, maybe half of the women are, are lactating, um, which is another concern, you know, in terms of pumping and feeding the baby. And, you know, if, if mom is um, breastfeeding exclusively, that means that she's waking up every two hours, the first several weeks of the baby's life um, around the clock to feed, to feed the baby. And all of these things really complicate the symptoms. So yeah, I, I agree with you that I think that the the illness itself is not different. It's that the stage of life that these folks are in really, really complicates things and um, intensif can intensify their symptoms and can make treatment more difficult, right? I mean, what's one of the first things we do when we're treating somebody who's depressed and anxious? We're looking at how much are they exercising? How much are they, how many ounces of water are they drinking a day? how much are they sleeping? Right. We, and we, we work on those things first. I always say I fix sleep first because how can anything else get better if sleep is a mess? Well, when you're breastfeeding a baby, I can't fix sleep. Right. She's got to be up to feed that baby every two hours. So that, you know, that's a complicating factor. Well, I was going to ask like the thought, the question that ran through my head was what are some of these challenges that you face as a clinician talking to these men and women going through this, like what are some of the greatest barriers that you face? Cause you can't tell her not to breastfeed anymore. Like right, you, right. you want, you feel like, Oh, well just put the baby down, put the baby on a schedule. It's a human being. It's not like, you know, it's not like it has like a, an on off switch where you could say, I'm going to put you down for, you know, a little bit. Correct. Um, yeah. So, I mean, sleep is, is definitely a big one. Feeding schedules, uh, another one in terms of my work face to face with the clients, most of them are bringing their babies with them. Many of them are breastfeeding in session. To me, that's not a barrier, but I think for a clinician who's not used to this population, it can be. I, I can think back to an employee that I had working for me. She did not stay very long, but she came to the clinical director at the time and said, are they allowed to breastfeed in session? <laughs> no, we make the baby starve so that we right. can focus on you know, CBT. Of actually, course they're allowed to breastfeed in session. I had a client ask me if she was allowed to breastfeed her baby yeah. in session. I was like, um, yeah. you do whatever yeah. your child needs. Like, yes. of course. I, yeah. I don't care what you do. You could lay down on the ground. I was fascinated yeah. though with nursing shirts. Yeah. They're, they, they're, they're helpful, they, right? Oh yeah. You don't have a lot. Of, yeah. What? A lot of my friends have been, I've seen it all. That's what I mean. Like, I'm not, sorry. I'm, I've seen them before. <laughs> I've seen them too, but like, they've changed they're, so much. Yes. Like, they're not like these, like, these frumpy, ugly, like, tops. Like, no, this, things hot these days. This person walked in, she had this really cute top on, like, this color block thing. And like, she's like, oh, do you mind if I breastfeed the baby? I'm like, sure. And like, the two different colors separated. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Like, what? Yeah. Dude, the nursing brought like that you didn't see anything yeah 
it's it's cool. I mean, I wish women could breastfeed and show it all and not feel well concerned about that. There, I, there, but there, but well, I'm glad that they have modest okay. options for clothing since that is not always acceptable in our culture. My boyfriend goes to this, um, and not since COVID, obviously, but he used to go to this like brewery restaurant thing in the city um, that had a playground. It was like a family friendly place, and he would bring his kids to play. And there was a woman there who took her entire shirt off and entire bra off. So she's topless from the waist up, breastfeeding her child sitting at the bar. I'm like, you go, girl. <laughs> He's texting. You know, it's better for the baby. Child. You I'm know? like, why not? But, um, <laughs> natural. It is. It is. It's and it's a natural thing to feed your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is what breasts are for. <laughs> so. Right. right. <laughs> They're not just to look cute. I just. <laughs> I mean, there, there is some evolutionary purpose for them to look cute. You know, they look like bottoms. Do you know this? That this is why women develop breasts because they look like bottoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, there, there is some um, importance there. But one of the other functions other than attracting a mate is to feed the baby. It's a pretty <laughs> important function. <laughs> pretty, that's pretty much what they're there for. So um, isn't she so like she makes like really crude things we would say sound really nice. I know because yeah. I say I literally had something to say that was not remotely eloquent at all. That's why I held back. I'm like, no, she's going to have to delete that anyway. So So what, what do you think is um, from a, like from Western cultural perspective, and it's kind of difficult with, especially the area that we live in being so diverse, what would you say are, are one of like the biggest barriers or stigmas that get in the way of someone seeking help? Oh, I think there's a lot of barriers for people seeking help. Um, you know, I've, I've met with women from various different religions where the religious belief was that God would heal them and that they, that counseling was, was not needed. My answer to that is that I have a pretty strong relationship with God and I'm fairly certain I'm doing this work because that was his idea. He's knocked me on my ass a few times in my life to get me on the path I'm on. You know, I wasn't listening, was whispering and I wasn't listening and knocked right on my ass to uh, get, get back on track in this direction. But so there, there can be religious or cultural beliefs like that that get in the way. But, you know, I think one of the biggest things is that folks are afraid that their babies are going to get taken away from them. You know, how do I go to the doctor and say, I'm afraid I'm going to stab my baby? Yeah. You know, or I'm afraid I'm going to put my baby in the microwave or I'm afraid... I'm going to throw my baby, you know, down the stairs. And these are the things that parents are experiencing. They're, they're experiencing them as thoughts. Some people are even experiencing them as sort of a mental image. It's not psychosis, um, but it's a, it's an intrusive thought that comes up as an image. They're terrifying for women. Um, And that's how we know that, that, that folks are not psychotic. If they're fearful of what they're, they're experiencing that tells us this is anxiety driven and you know is not something that we need to be worried about i always say to women i'm not worried that you're having that thought i'm worried that you're anxious and don't feel good that concerns me but the thought you're having doesn't concern me at all because thoughts don't equal action right 
And that, and that actually, I was involved in a conversation this week on, and I, this is also a sensitive topic on suicidality and like suicidal ideations and normalizing that a thought is a thought or in the whole term, the umbrella of intrusive thoughts. Like just because you're having a thought doesn't mean you have to give that thought privilege. And it doesn't mean you're going to follow through on that action. Correct. And a thought comes into your head. You can't control that. Like it pops in Correct. and that that you're having but what's underneath that thought and like that's a lot of people don't realize that and they don't want to talk about it because then they have fears like you said of you know women getting their babies taken away then other you know someone who maybe has suicidal ideations they fear being sent to the hospital immediately i'm like that's never the goal right unless definitely needed unless we felt there was a um an actual like imminent like need for that but that's never the goal for that and there's ways to explore that and a lot of people they fear that judgment they fear the yeah. judgment of oh my gosh this this person think i'm crazy there's something wrong with me and then they they don't talk about it and that's where the harm is because you're not getting underneath the issue about the anxiety that underneath all that yeah like, a lot of people are thinking that like these intrusive images or, or thoughts, I think that they're so intense that a lot of people tend to feel like they're losing. Yeah. They feel like they're going crazy for mm -hmm. sure. And, but what I have to say is that some women are, many women are totally justified in their fear of telling their, their providers about these thoughts because too many providers, even mental health providers do not understand that an ego dystonic thought and that, that ego dystonia is when it doesn't jive with who you are. If you feel fearful, you don't want to do it. Um, that an ego dystonic thought is, means that this is a anxiety based problem and not psychosis. And, right. you know, we, we hear about postpartum psychosis in the news and unfortunately in the news, they call it postpartum depression because the media doesn't know the difference. And so then women are hearing these confusing messages and their doctors aren't well-trained. And, you know, I know people who were sent to the hospital and their babies were taken away because of a well-meaning obstetrician or a well-meaning pediatrician mm -hmm. who wasn't trained, who didn't know that this is a really common, that's, you know, a common occurrence to, to put it in perspective, Postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, mental health complications are the most common complication of childbirth, the most common. And it, anybody who's had a baby will tell you that every week you have your urine, every week, every visit you go to, you have your urine screened for proteins. You are having your blood pressure checked to make sure you're not hypertensive. And in other states, they're not screening for postpartum depression, but it's much more likely that a woman is going to get depression or anxiety, then, then she's going to get hypertensive. It's much more likely. We were talking with our, our guests in our last episode about the differences between mental health professionals and medical professionals and how, you know, the, the medical education doesn't necessarily provide enough mental health background to give doctors the opportunity to understand and the confidence to understand the mental health component. And so they end up acting based off of their medical education as they should, but it becomes inappropriate because it's about mental health and they are unable to detect that because they haven't been educated. And so they kind of get, regardless of their education, get lumped into this category with mm -hmm. the rest of the world and society who is under about mental health 
and the challenges that happen that are sometimes normal and sometimes not. And so people overreact because they're, it sounds like something it's not. Right. That's exactly right. It sounds like something it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this I, is, I mean, this would make me not want to ask for help unless I knew that that person knew what they were doing. You know, I would be fearful of sending a friend to ask for help in this situation unless I knew that their provider knew what they were doing. I mean, that's how serious this is. Well, and this is, you know, for the people who are listening, this is the reason why we're having an episode like this is to let you know that like, there is something normal about this experience for one. And for another, this is an experience that you may want to share with a mental health professional, not necessarily a medical professional at the start, just until you get a handle on what's going on and you begin to understand it a little bit more. Well, I was just going to say that, like, I just, I, and I know that this topic gets talked about a lot more. This isn't anything new and I understand that, but I just hope that people hearing this can understand because the same thing, like I said, with the SI, like you, it's okay to have intrusive thoughts. It's uncomfortable. It's no one wants it, but it's not abnormal. Right. But it's not abnormal. Normalizing that, like having these types of thoughts is, is okay. You know, based on the, the intent behind it. And part of the discussion that you know, I was involved in had to do with, you know, medical professionals jumping the gun and saying, okay, well, you know, you, you want to hurt yourself or something or hurt someone else. Mm -hmm. And okay, off to the, off to the ER we go. And then you are for three or four hours only to get told that you're fine, go home, you know, and that's people don't like there's an actual process that if like you can reach out for help and have someone to actually talk to and actually process what's going on with right. it. Actually and we can keep people stable in the community. Exactly. Right. You know, we don't have to hospitalize people to keep them safe. Right. By the way, if you're listening and you're a medical professional, we appreciate you. Oh, this yes. has nothing yeah, well, to do with the way that we think about you. It's more of you know, you're not necessarily provided with the resources right out of school exactly. to here's, do what you've got to do. Here's the, well, I want to say two things to that. It's not only medical professionals. There are many, many mental health professionals that don't yeah. get this either. And, and I'm thinking they don't have any excuse, but, <laughs> but you know, they're not being trained either. Right. So the other piece though, for the medical professionals, and this is really challenging is our healthcare system. Yeah. That, you know, folks, and when I say folks, I mean, the doctors have 15 minutes to spend with people. Maybe they have 10 minutes to spend with people. And, you know, they, you know, an obstetrician at a six week visit is checking to see if stitches have healed, is checking to, to see how the woman's physical body is and to try to, in a 10 or 15 minute session, also assess her mental health. It's just not fair. And, and the insurance companies are to blame for that. Oh, uh. Yes, this keeps coming up, and we really probably are gonna have. To I'm gonna have, have to. We have to do an episode on insurance because I can't. I just can't. I can't. It just. It's so disturbing. It's just. It's such a barrier for so so much. So care. many people. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, and they don't pay. You know, in mental health, it really is a barrier because they don't pay appropriately at all. Uh, I, you know, I was just negotiating with a very large national insurer, and. You know, I want to offer care to their patients. We, you know, in our clinic, we are um, developing an expertise in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. No one in the area is doing this. I would think the insurance companies would jump at the chance to have an in-network provider. They offered us $69 a session. 
for, you know, <laughs> you can't even afford to pay the clinician when all is said and done at that rate. So, you know, it, um, I can't even hide my face. yeah, it's, um, it's bad. And this is why so many mental health professionals are out of network because they can't, they wouldn't be able to put food on the table if they went in network. And that then creates a barrier for the consumer to mm-hmm. access service services, because if you can't afford to pay out of pocket, you probably can't get mental health care in this country. Well, you so know, true. mental health is not so something true. that stays in one socioeconomic class. Correct. Like mental health is no different whether you're making, you know, $5 an hour as a waitress or $500 an hour as a waitress. I made 213. Yeah. And that was like 20 years ago. We doing the age thing again? <laughs> you're making it up. I'm not having this conversation. The point is, and it wasn't 20 years ago. It was probably like 18, 13, (laughs) 13. (laughs) The point is so far that it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't matter whether you're making minimum wage or less, or you're like a high level executive making like six, seven figures. Right. Like, now, I would I would argue that people who are living in poverty have it worse. That no doubt, of course, mental health doesn't discriminate. It affects everybody in all groups equally. But you know, when people are food insecure or they're living in environments that aren't safe, that's much more challenging yeah. for them. Yeah. Well, and it's it is like the the environment definitely um, brings its own challenges as far as like disposi- like natural genetic predisposition. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of, it's the luck of the draw. Yeah. It's kind of, it, yeah. it doesn't discriminate. You know, people are, um, people are vulnerable regardless of their status in life. Right. That's such, that's gotta be a challenge too, that you've seen for, for women or men that you're, that you've been working with that don't have access to this type of care that you can provide, you know, yeah. that don't have that type of access. And like, that's such a shame because, when you're saying that 91% is a really big number of women that are reporting and like how many of the, that 91%, how many are actually able to get treatment? And I don't mean willing because willing is one thing and there can be more willing than able. And that's to me, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So we, you know, we know that it's one in seven women who have a baby that gets sick. So that's a pretty high number. This is again, the most common complication of childbirth. Um, in terms of what I'm seeing, we're really lucky in New Jersey. Mary Jo Cody, who was the first lady of New Jersey several years back, her platform was postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And that is why New Jersey was the first state to have mandated screening. Um, we also have, she had something called the Speak Up When You're Down campaign. Um, there was funding thrown into that. There's still funding in that. Each county in New Jersey has trained providers on a grant basis to provide care to women who are uninsured or underinsured, and they are required to get them in within two weeks of the initial phone call. So this is a wonderful thing yeah. in New Jersey, um, because even if we get calls you know, at Artemis, you know, for somebody who's, who's on state insurance, uh, Medicaid, um, or who doesn't have any insurance at all, and they're not able to pay out of pocket, even with a reduced fee, we're able to refer them to this hotline to receive services. And we know that they're going to be treated by somebody who is trained and is an expert at this. And so that's a wonderful thing in New Jersey and other States. It's not so easy. 
Well, um, I was just going to ask that. Like, do you know of any other states? So I don't know, but a very good resource for your listeners, both clinicians and and parents, um, is Postpartum Support International. Their website is postpartum.net. And it looks like they're, they have a helpline, which is staffed by volunteers. And that number is 1-800-944-4773. They have have volunteers all over the world. It's an international not-for-profit. And it's, you know, these hotlines are staffed by, um, usually staffed by survivors, people who have been through this and have recovered. And they have lists of providers in all of these different areas. And so even as a provider, this is what I would do. I would reach out to Postpartum Support International and say, who do you know in California? Who do you know in Louisiana? Who, you know, uh, she's moving. I need to get her linked up or, you know, my friend is sick and she lives in New Orleans. How, you know, how do I get her help? Um, So it's, it's, it's a pretty good system to, to get people linked up with care. And there's a lot of people in this space who do pro bono work as well. I've done pro bono work with, with this population numerous times um, where, fo- you know, folks can't afford the care. And so we see them for whatever they can pay. Mm-hmm. It's important. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. We'll make sure to put Yeah, we'll post all that information okay. on social media. Yeah. In the, in the get help section of our highlights at the top of our Instagram page, which if you're not already following us, that's at no underscore BS therapy. Um, we'll make sure to put any resources that Kate has provided us with there just in case you are seeking some help and you need a place to start. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kate. We You're really welcome. Kate, you and all of them. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, this was fun. It flew by. I, I know. know. I know. It went quick. So my practice is the Artemis Center for Guidance and you can reach us at artemisguidance.com or our phone number is 856 589 three, four, two, zero. Um, if folks have questions for me, they can feel free to email me Kate at artemisguidance.com. I'm happy to, to answer any questions or to provide resources for folks. That's not a problem at all. Awesome. And Kate, we would love to, um, to talk to you more about this stuff in the future and any other sort of topics that you think are, yeah, you know, under, uh, represented in our current situation, like our cultural situation. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I would love that. I would love to come back. I think it would be fun to talk about postpartum OCD specifically. Oh, I would love that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We are having, uh, with someone that, you know, actually, we are going to have an episode coming up in the future on anxiety disorder and OCD. And we're going to discuss a little bit about some of the ways that that can be treated, what to look for, and all of that good stuff. So adding in the postpartum component will be amazing. That's Yeah, I would be happy to help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for thank joining us. Thank you so us. much, Kate. Thank You're you. welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you. And we ask that you stay tuned for the next episode in our season. Thanks, guys. See you soon. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or a desire to self-harm, please reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255 for 24-hour support.